Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word as it unfolds who you are, who we are. Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate our hearts, open our eyes to see wonderful things in Luke 18, and and awaken us to the beauty of the reward that Christ offers us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Reward motivates us to act. If we know that there's a chance to get a 10% off coupon, we'll subject ourselves to receive a ton of emails by subscribing to that seller's newsletter. Sometimes we'll do something goofy and sacrifice our pride for the reward of attention or a good laugh. Commission jobs are dependent on performance, and those who perform well receive a measure of reward. We'll take on a project for the joy and reward of seeing it completed. People will risk their lives in combat for the reward of honor, victory, and peace. Reward motivates us to act. So should this be true for us as it relates to following Jesus? Should we as Christians follow Jesus at all costs simply for the reward of it? Should we be calling people to leave their old life behind, to believe in and love Jesus above all else because of what's in it for them? Should you trust a Savior who makes a lot of promises about the life and riches you'll have in a heaven that you can't see? The answer, I think, to all of these questions from Luke 18 is yes. Yes, the reward of following Jesus should motivate us to follow him at all costs. That's what the reward is there for, to motivate us. Yes, you should leave behind your old life to believe in and love Jesus because of what's in it for you. Yes, you should trust a Savior who makes a lot of promises about the life and riches in in a heaven you can't see because he will make it happen. That's the main point of the sermon this morning, and I pray that the Spirit uses it to motivate us. It's this, if you follow Jesus, he will reward you with eternal life. If you follow Jesus, he will reward you with eternal life. That might seem oversimplified, but the more I kind of sat on that, I found myself thinking, if that's the clear message of this passage, then it's actually a message that I have a hard time believing, that if I follow Jesus, he is going to follow through on a reward called eternal life. Why is it that eternal life doesn't seem to motivate us, to to push us towards following Christ in a complete and sacrificial way? Why does that statement, if you follow Jesus, he will reward you with eternal life, seem unimpressive or maybe kind of stale? Could it be that we find a hard time imagining a life better than the one we've got? If I follow Jesus and do what he's calling me to do, will it be worth it? Will it be better even? What he's asking me to do is hard, and it seems like it might be hard, too hard. Well, you know, why bother? Some would say that following Jesus includes financial prosperity. I watched, I watched a video this week from a, a prominent so-called ministry where a man was saying very confidently that financial miracles for you are an overflow of God's glory. Now, we'd, we'd have to say that that doesn't match scripture's definition of following Jesus because he followed through to say, God wants to lead you into a new realm of super prosperity in this life. Jesus, following Jesus doesn't entail or promise financial prosperity for us right now, but it does involve true and eternal prosperity, true reward. The falsehood that is the prosperity gospel is a counterfeit of a very, very biblical truth. And if we discount that truth, we've lost so much of our motivation for following Jesus in the first place. Jesus will reward you if you follow him. That 
is true. And I think Luke 18 helps us to not throw out that very precious but misused promise that is meant to to light us up and excite our hearts when it comes to following Jesus. Here's that promise. If you follow him, he will reward you with eternal life. I found it helpful a few weeks ago to ask questions as we go along. So there's four questions this morning, and some of them are actually helpfully right in the passage that we just read. Point number one is, what must I do? This is where the requirement of following Jesus is is laid out in verses 18 through 23. What must I do? Jesus had just reprimanded his disciples and taught them that there is something about dependent, helpless children that shows who is able to receive the kingdom of God. In striking contrast to a helpless baby, now a ruler comes to Jesus with a question. And we don't have much detail about this man, but we know that he is in kind of the ruling class of the Jews, and he has a lot of money. In other words, he's not anywhere near like a helpless child. And that actually has implications for what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. He has chosen to come to Jesus to ask him a question, and Mark's account of this same story shows this man coming and falling before Jesus. So he really does want an answer and shows at least some level of desperation. As he approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking something we'd all love to know. How do I get eternal life? Jesus, how do I get in on this? We'll come back to that, but Jesus focuses in on how this ruler addresses him for some reason. And Jesus said to him, verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus seems to be doing kind of two things here at once. He seems to be correcting and inviting the ruler at the same time. Every resource I I looked at this week agreed that the title good was only ever really given to God himself or his law. It's a high title and it's also reserved. It's reserved for those two things, God himself and his law. God is good, so why, Mr. Ruler, are you calling me good, Jesus says. He's correcting kind of any unnecessary flattery that's going on, but he's also inviting this man to make a connection. God is the only one good, but you did call me good. Just like Philippians 2 says, Jesus did not account equality with God as something to use to his advantage, so he kind of, he downplays it, but he doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny that he is the only good God. This is one thing the ruler has misunderstood in asking his own question about inheriting eternal life. He's missed the fact that Jesus is the one who grants that eternal life as God himself. How can we possibly receive eternal life without knowing who it comes from? Jesus prayed this in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus is the gateway to eternal life, this eternal life that we're all after. And knowing Jesus in all his splendor and beauty is the goal of that same eternal life as well. Jesus moves on to actually answering the ruler's question in in verse 20. He says, "You you know the commandments. In other words, you know what is required. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. For Jews, the law was their covenant with God, and keeping the law brought blessings that God had promised to them. You can find those in the the latter part of Deuteronomy. There's blessings for keeping the law. There's curses for disobeying. But notice this in Deuteronomy 5, 29. This is right after Israel rehearses the law again. You have the the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus, but then they rehearse it again and kind of kind of like a commitment ceremony where, okay, these are the Ten Commandments. We're committed to doing these. 
And God responds to them like this in Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. He wants people with a heart of commitment to himself. But the ruler seems to have taken the laws which Jesus listed, and, and he says, all these I've kept from my youth. I've, I've done these. It's probably accurate that since his time as a boy until now, he hasn't slept with number, another woman. He hasn't killed anybody. He hasn't stolen, given false te- testimony, and he has honored his father and mother. He's a ruler and also a faithful man. We can assume that this is true because Jesus doesn't say otherwise. He doesn't say, oh, but you haven't kept, kept it perfectly. But notice that Jesus is only including laws relating to this man's treatment of other people. He skipped the commandments that involved the ruler's worship of God. Again, notice Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, a heart of genuine love. The question is, does the ruler have that? Jesus has left this piece out on a purpose. The first and primary commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Has he kept those laws too? Basically, what's his heart of hearts? Verse 22 and 23 reveal his heart of hearts. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus notes that he's missing something. You want eternal life? Well, one thing you still lack, Mr. Ruler. You lack a love for God that exceeds your love for your money. You have not kept the law as you think. It's as if Jesus is repeating those lines that the ruler undoubtedly knew all too well, as did every Jew from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O rich ruler, one thing you still lack, Mr. Ruler, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The fact that the ruler was so sad by what Jesus was calling to him to do proves that he just he couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't dump all his wealth and possessions on the poor. That's too much to ask. For the ruler, the motivation of treasure in heaven is not enough to pry him from his wealth. It didn't seem worth it to him. Knowing God was a concept, but when push came to shove, he loved his lifestyle more. Following Jesus required something of him, and that something was too much to let go of. If he could have both, he would, he would take it. But Jesus is clear that he cannot love his possessions and his God. So the question comes to us, because we still haven't quite answered it. We've answered it kind of in this specific scenario, but what must I do to have eternal life? The answer has been repeated so many times already throughout Luke as we've been walking through this book, and it's specifically here at the end of verse 22. Come, follow me. That's what I must do to inherit eternal life. Come, follow Jesus, and he'll give that to you. It's the same call as Deuteronomy. Hear, O people sitting here this morning, the Lord your God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Follow him. Love him and him alone, and you will have treasure in heaven. This morning is a chance for us to take an honest look at who or what we are following or loving most. We could address so many things, so many loves or things that we prize, but I want to I focus on the particular love that's addressed here, which is how easy it is to love money to the neglect of following Jesus. And guys, I've, I've wrestled a lot in the last 10 months about how my life should look like as a Christian, as a son of God, who for all intents and purposes is rich. 
how am I supposed to look at financial stability and wealth and steward it in a God-honoring way? I struggled with that and found myself just confused generally. Do I feel guilty for material blessings and gifts from others? Am I supposed to occupy some lower standard of living to avoid seeming excessive? Should I be giving more than I'm giving currently? How do I know whether I'm enjoying stuff too much? I've got so many questions, and no doubt you do at times too, but what, what it boils down to is what, what do I love? What do we love? As in truly desire and cherish the most. I call myself a rich Christian because I think that's where most of us are in this setting. I think if we, if we disqualify ourselves from that group of people, we're really missing out on the call here. We are this ruler. We have a lot. We enjoy a lot. And it's a gift from God, which begs the question, does your love for having or acquiring possessions, having or acquiring money, saving and keeping wealth, and maintaining a particular lifestyle compete with your love for God? Or does your use of those things aid in pushing you into a deeper love for Jesus and for others? What do you desire and cherish the most? Now that sounds vague, but I do think we have to answer that if we're going to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, which is just what this man is unable to do. I wonder if the stagnation of our, or, or just like spiritual lifelessness that we feel sometimes is because our concerns are wrapped up in places that our primary concerns aren't meant to be wrapped up in. In addition to that, our love for more could ultimately choke the life out of our faith. Think of the parable of the sower in Luke 8. What does the seed choked out by the weeds Symbolized, Jesus ex- explains it. It is the person who heard the word and believed for a time, but whose faith was void because these three things choked it out. The cares, the riches, the pleasures of this life. Friends, that's, that's a real threat to your faith right now. The cares, the pleasures, the riches of this life. We can pretend like our stuff is so wonderful that our heart for riches and God can coexist, but they can't. One will swallow up the other, and we have to make a conscious choice. That's what Jesus is calling this man to do. He's he's asking him to make a conscious choice um, that reflects in his actions, who do you love the most? Will you sell all that you have to the poor, or can you not give that up? And Luke, Luke doesn't mince words when it comes to the danger of riches. I'm not, what we're not saying this morning is that having and the blessings that we receive from the Lord are, are evil. No, that's not, that's not true. And I know you've probably heard that so many times. They're, they're meant to be enjoyed in the praise and worship of God with him as still as the focus. They're not meant to occupy a central position. But, but Luke, speaking to Theophilus, says and mentions Jesus saying over and over again that there's danger in riches. He notes Jesus' cautions more than any of the gospel writers. It seems like it's a priority for him. And I think it's because he wants that, that Theophilus, that rich man, and the Spirit wants us to know that the pleasure and, possess, pleasure and possessions have this unique ability to steal away our love from the source of all goodness and pleasure, which is God, who alone is worthy of our worship. Perhaps if we didn't love our stuff so much, we would have a whole lot more bandwidth for loving and adoring our Savior. This doesn't mean just love stuff less. By stuff, I mean kind of the the whole, like whether it's dollar bills or or possessions or things or what, what we can acquire with our money. Doesn't mean just love stuff less. It means worshiping God through those blessings so that he ultimately matters more than the gift itself. If, if you want help discerning just how to go about that, I just recommend this. This is a little tiny book called Strangely Bright. 
And I just recommend it to you. It deals with that contradiction between, well, God should be my greatest joy, but he gives us all things to enjoy. How do, those, how, how do I make sense of that? He should be the main focus of my worship, but he says he's blessed me with these things to enjoy them, which is good and right. So this, this book has helped me not downplay the wonderful gifts of God, not treat them as bad, but to enjoy him through those things. In a backwards kind of way, that causes me to love my stuff less because I love the glorious generous God who's given me these things. I just think that's a, that's a predicament we don't really like to address right now, but it's as far as like navigating through what we have, what we've been given, what we've been blessed with, um, especially if you're just the beneficiary of a lot of generosity from family, from others. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to feel guilty for this? Or how can this be turned around in praise to God and, and worship to him? So I recommend that to you. Read it with your spouse. Let your teen read it. If you're interested in getting it, be happy to, to get that for you. I think it's shaped me in some particular ways, but it kind of it debunks part of trying to figure out, do I, love, do I love money? Do I love something else other than God? Or am I loving God through those good things that he's given? Loving Christ more than our stuff also doesn't mean that we just automatically trade places with the poor, but it does mean we need to make a concerted effort to push back against those choking effects of riches through generosity and sacrifice, especially towards those in need, in order to ensure that our love for Jesus is for him alone. There's... there's conscious effort and decisions that say, I know that riches and the cares and the pleasures of this life are going to threaten to choke the life out of my faith. They want to take my attention off of Christ and onto less important, less eternally significant things. So I want to consciously push back against that. So what, what habits of managing your things or managing your money reflect loving Christ more? What ways can you actively show, you know, riches could be threatening me here and I trust in future promises. Therefore, I'm using my money like this on purpose to ward off this, this hoarding mentality or just this, this incessant need to have more. I want to push back against that. Why? Oh, we'll get to the fact that there's greater reward for us. That should be an immediate sort of I, I don't, I'm not, my, my soul is not bound to this wealth here on earth. Therefore, I can act accordingly because I know that there's, there's something reserved for me ahead. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Partly, we must trust that the eternal life Jesus offers as a precious reward for following him is worlds better than any amount of money or any level of ability to buy and have and keep money or possessions. That incessant desire to have more or to keep as much as you have at all costs, it might consume your life to the point where you never see the glory of the reward of an eternity with Jesus. And friends, I don't, I don't like what this requires of me, what this passage requires of me. That's my kind of like my immediate response. I don't like what this requires of me. But the weight of having to choose one or the other, if, if it's dependent on one or the other, it does make me want Jesus much more. Jesus, if my stuff stands in the way of me getting to you, then take it. If that next big purchase never comes because you want my whole heart, may it be so. If sacrificial and excessive generosity is one way to keep me from loving my money more than you, show me who I can give to. That's, that's the, the eternal mentality we're meant to have that says I prize this reward that I've been promised more than I prize the things that I can acquire right now. I was, I was affected when Dan introduced us to 1 Timothy 6 in his sermon on the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. 1 Timothy 6 is the rich Christian's handbook 
And like I said, I think that describes us generally as a church, economically speaking. As for the rich in the present age, Paul says to Timothy, as for the rich in the present age, which again, take that to mean you, because that kind of opens up this passage for us to understand what, it, what it's calling us to. As for the rich in the, the, this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who does what? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And I can't help but wonder, where, where does Paul get that idea? He, he's learning that from Jesus. Teach the rich in this present age to trust in God more than anything else, thus storing up for themselves treasure which can't be lost and true life. So here's the charge for you and I. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Set your hope in God. Do good with your money, friends, and be generous, always ready to share. I've noticed that my, my readiness to share is a pretty good thermometer as to what I'm just kind of clinging to or holding on to too tightly. So be ready to share. You'll store up treasure in heaven, reward without compare. And by doing so, you will truly be living and will continue to live in the light of God's pleasure as his children. One last illustration. I know this first point is the bulk of this text, so we'll move on to the other questions. But one last illustration, because I, I want to press, press us a little bit on this. Because the reason being is because I've, I've found it so easy to say, oh, I, I just, I don't trust in my stuff. Lord can take it if he wants. Um, I feel, feel like there's a good, like, outflow of generosity going on. Uh, but, but sometimes that's just a kind of um, beating around the bush of, like, do, do I love this more than Christ? Do I love my things? If I lose this thing or that thing or all of these things, um, would it cause me to despair of life to the point where I think that God is, doesn't, doesn't want my joy and happiness, which he does, except he's, he's preserving and reserving the greatest of joy and happiness for eternity. And he's promised that to us. So some of you know this reference from 1973, and uh, some of you are thinking, you weren't even alive in 1973. And my only defense is that this has been a reference in my family for a long time. In 1973, the OJs released a song, For the Love of Money. If you don't know that song, you'd probably recognize the guitar riff and the money, money, money intro. Surprisingly, it's an insightful song, I think, about what people will do for the sake of money. One part of the song goes like this. I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Give me a nickel, brother, can you spare a dime? Money can drive some people out of their minds. People will go to great lengths, even socially acceptable lengths for the sake of their almighty dollar. I was, I was very greedy as a kid. I think there's just some remnants of that in me, but uh, just two quick examples. I used to have a book that was my piggy bank because in, in that book there was an envelope of whatever birthday money, you know, whatever cash I ended up getting over the course of time. And I would go, go to that book, open it up, and just count and recount and recount and recount. Ultimately, that grew into a, uh, a fondness for collecting coins. I used to collect coins as a kid just because uh, it, was, it was fascinating, yes, but like this is money, and there's all different kinds of it, and it's all different values, and, and just became kind of uh, not, not so much a hobby as a, an obsession. And the other example would be uh, when family would come over to celebrate a birthday, when I was little, I would hold out my hand expecting, expecting something before even greeting anybody. It's like, that's, that's greed at work in a, in a young boy's heart, and it just manifests itself in some interesting ways. But that, we're, we're not immune to that even now. I think those same habits kind of show up in my heart just in, like I said, more socially acceptable ways, things that don't look as 
blatant. But maybe you're a teen who doesn't make money right now, but you relish the thought of making money in an obsessive way. Maybe, maybe your shopping habits are a part of your life that's untouched by biblical restraint and self-control. Maybe your desire to prepare for your financial future is just causing you to be anxious. You've heard so many horror stories, so you're going to pad things up and shore things up. Are you fearful about the future? Or are you certain that God's got you covered in the ways that really matter? He provides food for the sparrow and clothes for the flowers. Can you believe that? I just picture him dressing each flower. He, He provides in that way and to that degree. I've got got nothing to be truly concerned about. He's got me now and he'll have me then. The love of money do funny things to some people, including, like this man, making temporary cash money and the nicest stuff look more valuable than eternal life in the kingdom of God. So question number two, who can be saved? That's kind of the, the next question that comes up in our text. And this just shows the grace and power of God and salvation. Verse 24 says, Jesus, seeing that, he had become, that seeing that this man had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. After talking about the love of money and what was really going on in this rich ruler's heart, it's clear that what Jesus is saying is a fact. It is hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. That makes, that makes my ears perk up as one who has all, you know, we have all that we could ask for and money to spare in some ways. Um, that means it's difficult for someone like me to enter the kingdom. Jesus uses an outlandish hyperbole to get the point across. You'd have an easier time walking a camel through the eye of a needle than seeing a rich man enter the kingdom. And lots of people have, have debated that illustration that Jesus is using. And so far as, so far as I can tell, he's talking about a camel and a needle. And there's no accident there. A really big camel, a really small needle. The point is, it's hard. In fact, it's, it's actually impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. Why? Because his heart is divided like this rich ruler. He can't and won't trade his temporary wealth for eternal reward. And those around Jesus are perplexed because he's, he's saying it, this is impossible. So they ask Jesus, then who can be saved? If this man who kept the law and was blessed materially won't make it into the kingdom then how can anyone? I'll just pause right here, reflect back to the little children who Jesus says, this, this is who the kingdom belongs to. So he, he is, he's not saying it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom because what he says next clears it up. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, we've, we've heard that a million times, kind of stripped right out of this passage. What is impossible with man is possible for God. But what he's saying is not, and it's, it's possible with God to let a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that anyone being brought into God's kingdom by faith is a pure miracle of God's power and grace and no one else's. The people listening are driven to despair by what Jesus is saying. They're thinking, well, Where's the hope for me, Jesus? To which Jesus responds, your hope is in God's ability to save. And that's, that's where our hope is today. All of my hope is in the power and mercy of God who is able to save me from sin and death and even deliver me from my love of money. Who can be saved, Jesus? To which Jesus effectively answers, the one whom God saves. Like I said, Jesus' words about it being difficult for the rich to enter spooked me a little bit when I consider myself kind of in that category. So the breath of relief comes when Jesus says that God is able to basically make room for this camel to make it through the eye of the needle or the narrow gate that leads to life. 
He can do it. He alone is able to save, and he is so gracious for letting us in. Jesus, Jesus is just inviting us once again in Luke to follow him. The constant call, follow me, come, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, even if it means sacrificing something that you love very deeply to gain something greater. That leads us to the third question, what's the payoff? Jesus, you're asking me to follow you. What's in it for me? What's my motivation? We, we said that reward is meant to motivate us. How can I know that it is worth more than being a rich man? I had a Sunday school teacher call Peter, ready, shoot, then aim, Peter, or shoot from the hip, Peter. And that's kind of what he's, what he's doing here. He's, he's eager to respond to Jesus. And Peter said, see, we, we've, we've left our homes and followed you. He's, he's kind of trying to like say, well, this is what we've done. We've done this. We're all good, right? And I think, I think it's interesting because you'd expect Jesus to, to respond to that and maybe rebuke Peter. But he, he actually kind of affirms what Peter is saying by going beyond what Peter has said. And he said to them, this is verse 28, truly I say to you, there is no one, not just you, Peter, and all the disciples, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus isn't referring here to like relocating for a job or relationships you've lost because of general disagreements. What he's saying is that every sacrifice that you make for the sake of the kingdom will be totally worth it. He's kind of like enveloping all of the loss that you'll experience as a Christian for making decisions in obedience to Christ. All of those will be worth it because the reward is so great. Worth it doesn't mean easy. He's saying that you may lose relationships and family and the place where you live. You might be outcasted or rejected or killed for that matter. We don't, even, we don't like to think of that possibility in America, but we should, we should not abandon the fact that following Jesus does involve loss at all, at all levels, at various levels. But Jesus is determined to point us to the fact that even if you lost your life for the sake of the kingdom of God, oh man, it will be worth it. Mark's account of this passage says you will be blessed a hundredfold, a hundred times on top of that. Every amount of money you give for the advance of the gospel that you could have used otherwise will be worth it. The loss of someone breaking ties with you for trying to bring the gospel to them will be worth it. Every time you relocate or leave your family with gospel purposes in mind, that will be worth it. Every time you fumble through sharing the gospel with someone and they do look at you sideways, oh, friends, reward is waiting for, that, for you for that step of faithfulness and a, measuring, a measure of suffering. Every investment of time into your children to help them grasp the love of Christ when you could have been doing something else will be worth it. God sees and is poised to bless you. Every time you have to make a tough decision to maintain your integrity, that will be worth it. And how? Because out of his abundance of grace, God will grant you, not as payment, but as a gift, he will grant you eternal life for having persevered to the end. It will be worth it because you will gain eternal life. And in this time, you will also have the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee and down payment of that very promise. Another particular blessing is that we gain a family that we didn't expect to have. When I think about what it took for the Lord to relocate particular people, gather them in this church, is this definite number of people, it's just miraculous. And the gift of friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood that I know Jackie and I have experienced is just marvelous as a result of God blessing. And, and I'm not saying that, that uh, we've sacrificed all to come to Dayton but I know my, my wife could speak to this as well. There's, there's uh, 
something to the leaving of family for the sake of another spiritual family that is just uh, so fulfilling in some respects. And so uh, it reminds me that our Father in heaven does bless us and is looking to care for us. Um, and just, it just builds my, my faith for, for what Jesus is saying here. He is going to reward us with eternal life if you follow him. He is going to come through on that promise. Many of you know the part of this story I'll mention here for a quick moment, the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian, the main character of the story, just recently heard about the bad news of destruction that's going to come upon his city because of its wickedness. He receives the good news that there's not just a way out, but there's a better shining city that he can live in forever, but only if he left ASAP. As he makes up his mind to leave, his wife and kids refuse to come and are trying to get him to stop this craziness. Suddenly, as they're calling out to him as he's leaving, they're calling out to him to come back. He puts his fingers in his ears and cries as he's running, life, life, eternal life, as he reminds himself of the goal ahead. The entire rest of the story is his journey through the Christian life until he finally comes to the gates of that city where King Jesus welcomes him in. Some of you have many years behind you or your body is failing some of you feel like a lot of life is ahead of you. But regardless, there are things that will tempt us to lose sight of that final reward, the city gate that we long for. So may the promised reward bring motivation this morning that would cause us to plug our ears, to ignore the cheap promises of more earthly wealth and cause us to shout out to ourselves and to others, life, eternal life, that's what's at stake. That's what he will grant you. That's what's in it for you and me if we follow Jesus according to his terms. Every sacrifice will be worth it, even the loss of whatever else we love, including our earthly security. If I'm honest, sometimes I'm, I'm scared that that reward won't be there. I'm, I'm wondering, is, is it going to be there? That moment where the Lord takes me, will I see that reward? I think as, that's the evil one whispering, did God really say that eternal life is what you'll get? Will it even be better than the nice life you have now? Well, one thing I'm sure about from Luke 18, it's that the rich man went away sad but the psalmist says, God's got fullness of joy and pleasures for how long? Forevermore in store for us. If the rich man is the man who's sad, I want what Jesus is offering. And we've been conditioned a little bit to not want something too much. Kind of live in a little bit of an evangelical world that makes it seem like you can't want something too much or, uh, because that's, that's wrong in case it rules us. But, but this is a place to let your desire run wild because Jesus is laying out eternal life with him as something we should want very, very much. You, you want to know whether or not following me is worth it? I've got, I've got something for you. He doesn't say financial prosperity here. That's, that's cheap. Jesus has something better than that short-sighted counterfeit. How does eternal life sound to you? Ask yourself that. How does eternal life sound to you? How about a place without death, no aches, no pains, seeing Jesus face-to-face -face in a perfect world that is just radiantly beautiful, evil, as a thing of the past, a place where people don't hurt each other, a place where peace reigns as you're in relationship with the triune God and you are loved beyond what you could ever imagine, fully accepted, rejoiced in, 
where everything you enjoy becomes a part of your worship of the very one who came up with the idea of you. Pure pleasure, not a tear in the eye of anyone there, singing and joy without interruption and all of this without end. Listen, we are crazy for not wanting that more. Let the reward motivate you. What's in it for you? A whole lot more than any temporary pain in this life will cost you, says Jesus. I said this two weeks ago, and I say it because it's just a way to rehearse this reality to myself. God will not skimp on his reward. Whether or not we have eternal life as a motivation for us, I think reflects whether or not we believe that God will come through on his promises. And by his grace, his Holy Spirit brings us back again and and again to a place where I believe that. I believe that you won't cut me out of any of the reward that you've promised already. I believe that you're not gonna shortchange me somehow. He's not joking. What's a dollar bill or a collection of dollar bills compared to eternal fellowship with the one who loved me and gave himself for me, the fountain of all delights, the king of the universe, my creator and my savior? I love what what Joy has decided to focus on with you ladies in your monthly meetings. The verse that she picked is Hebrews 11.6, which many of you know by heart by now. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder. He rewards those who seek him. And if you follow Jesus, he will reward you with eternal life. Our last question as point number four is, how can this be? How can Jesus make such a promise to us, and how do I get in on it? So before we look at verses 31 to 34, I'd like us to listen to Jesus while we take the Lord's Supper together. Now we take the Lord's Supper to take note of the fact that Jesus was in fact a sacrifice for sins. And as we come and gather to take this together, if you've trusted in that sacrifice and responded to his call to come follow him, then this is a moment to remember and be spiritually revitalized. Whether you're a member of this church or, or you're a part of another church and are at peace with your brothers and sisters, you can, you can join in on this. If you're not a Christian and have not chosen to follow Jesus, we, we ask that you just remain in your seats and listen. As for those who've trusted in Christ, we got stations in the front and the back. Worship team, you can, you can stay seated for just a little bit uh, as we walk through this last point. But we want to take this with uh, these verses in mind. So you can come, take your, take your cup and your bread back to your seat. Maybe not open it just yet, uh, just, just in case. Uh, and then we'll, we'll share in this together. Okay, so, so how can this be? How can it be that Jesus can promise us eternal life in exchange for following him as as a gift as a blessing to us we've already seen how what is impossible with man is possible with god in other words your wealth your righteousness cannot save you but god can save he sure can we've fallen short of his glory we've sinned and rebelled against him with every fiber of our being We have no hope of eternal life unless God steps in. So where does that leave us? It leaves us desperately looking for a savior, someone who can do what we couldn't do, keep the law, love God first, pay for our sins, raise our dead hearts to life. So we come to him even this morning, even when we come to the Lord's Supper to to refresh our minds and remember the sacrifice of Jesus and what it cost him to save us, and we come helpless, just confessing our need for him. And as we look at this passage in Luke, uh, we have to remember that we're still in this section of Luke where Jesus is slowly but surely journeying to Jerusalem. Next week, we'll find him in Jericho, which is en route to Jerusalem, and he's going there for one reason. So here's what he says in these last verses. And taking the 12, so gathering the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The disciples were confused. They didn't connect the dots on what was coming because it was hidden from them. But church, it's not, it's not hidden from us. The eternal life that we are promised is promised for one reason, because he loves us. And it's possible for one reason, because he loved us to the point of death. Were it not for Jesus going to the cross in Jerusalem, we would have no hope. Were it not for him being spit upon, shamefully treated, mocked, flogged, and killed, we'd stand here in this room if we happened to be gathered together, counting down the moments until God destroys us for our sin and rebellion against him. But for those who trust in him, it's a different story. Now we sit here holding two symbols of this dark and tragic moment where Jesus' body was torn open and his heart bled dry. We don't take the cup and the bread to be saved, but we take it because it's a visual message to us. Here's what it says, take, take Jesus' body. This is what this visual message is communicating to us. Take Jesus' body, which was fashioned in his mother's womb with a specific purpose that he would walk among us and then be killed for us. And also take his blood, which was poured out to forgive you of your sins. He wants us to live with him forever to the praise of his glory. And he went to this length to make sure that it happens. And we rejoice in that. We say, Jesus, thank you. My life is yours if it means eternal life with you. So Jesus took that bread on the night that he was betrayed and he gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. And before we drink together, until he comes means and also until he delivers to us the reward that he's promised, which is eternal life. So until he comes, let's drink together. I invite the worship team to come, come up front as we prepare to sing together and I pray that, that the reward of eternal life set ahead of us would motivate us, that it would cause us to say, Jesus, I want to follow you because nothing compares to that sort of promise.